is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Colorado Rockies have won their last two games, right? So that's something. I mean, they're still 10 to 20, not particularly good. The The problem for the Rockies, of course, is, is manifold. And we will start off, of course, with the uh, Herman Marquez injury. Joining us now to discuss it from the Denver Gazette is Danielle Allentuck, their Rockies reporter. You can follow her on Twitter, D underscore Allentuck. And uh, Danielle, thank you for joining us. The news that Herman uh, Marquez has to undergo Tommy John's surgery, he will miss the rest of this season. We know he does have a team option for $16 million next year. It feels hard to uh, imagine that the, the the Rockies would pick that up given the recovery. But give me an idea, if you could, of, of the feel around the Rockies. Their ace goes down for the year and may have very well played his last game in purple and black. I mean, they were bummed. I don't think there's any other way to put it. Marquez was bummed. Bud Black was bummed. Marquez's fellow pitchers were bummed. Um, it really is a big hit to this team because not only is he arguably their best starter, he's also a huge leader on the team, especially among the Spanish players there. Yes. Uh, I, I think, it, of course, he's different from uh, Cargo, but it, I, I think he has the same kind of, respect uh, and uh, admiration uh, for what he is on the field and off the field within that clubhouse. It's, it's very similar. And uh, the, the effect on the uh, team is obviously uh, devastating, uh, but uh, as far as picking up that team option, uh, would you guess at this point that there is no chance of their doing that? some chance of they're doing it or a good chance of they're doing it? So I think it's really hard to see them being willing to pay $16 million for a pitcher who may not even be able to play next season. And if he does, it would maybe not be until like August or September. I think a better chance is that they kind of reconstructure his deal a little bit. So they can't, they can't change the money on the option because that's already in contract. But what they can do is sign a new deal that starts next year and like say it's like a two year twenty million dollar deal and he can be paid like five million dollars for next year and fifteen for the year after. I could see them doing something like that. Right. So I think that they do want to try to keep him because they're never gonna get another pitcher like him to come to Colorado. It, it or could it be do, argued it's gonna be a lot more expensive. I know that you're a lot younger than we are, but could it be argued that in the history of the franchise when it comes to starting pitchers, there's an argument to be made that he's been the best one. I'd he's been argument. in the postseason twice, uh, probably over those two years all told. Been an all-star. He was their best pitcher. He's been an all-star. Of course, we remember Abaldo's uh, rise to greatness, but it was a meteoric rise followed by a meteoric disappearance, unfortunately for uh, Abaldo. Uh, that's the real tragedy here in a sports sense that someone in the prime of his career, not at age 20 or 21 when Tommy John surgeries are fairly common, but someone at 28 right in the middle of his prime uh, would be struck down uh, this way that uh, you're not just talking about the Rockies best pitcher. Now you're probably over 31 years talking about the best starting pitcher the Rockies have ever had at the very least. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely make that argument. If he's not their best starter in history, then he's at least top five, top three. He's definitely up there, especially if you just look at the stats. I mean, he was three strikeouts away from being their all-time leader in strikeouts. So he was right up there of all the greats. Um, and you mentioned that he's 28. He's not 21. But he's 28 and has never had a major arm injury before. And unfortunately, with pitchers, they're going to have a major arm injury at some point in it's their inevitable. life. It's inevitable. Yeah, inevitable. But, I mean, He's only 28. He could have come back when he's 30, per se, if we're figuring he's going to miss all of next season, too, which is a good chance. He could still have five more seasons after that. I mean, sure, you're looking at, you know, Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer and, and a lot of other pitchers extending their career far uh, into that spot, and with a minimal injury history, there's a good chance of that. So, uh, a shame for Marquez, but I'm actually with you. I think actually brighter days are to come for Herman Marquez, even though this is obviously a really rough one. For the Rockies, it's it's a injury they simply cannot overcome. They do not have the personnel to overcome it in the minors. They don't have it anywhere. This just makes a bad team worse. This is the fourth oldest team in terms of position players. Where is the hope? The idea that the Rockies talked about you know putting themselves in a position not to block their younger players if you go look at who's there right now, that's sort of all they're doing is blocking the younger players. What appears to be the plan at this at this point down to 20th and Blake? That is such a good question that I, I don't know the answer to anymore because you're exactly right. All offseason, everything Bill Schmidt was saying, but Black from up top was, we are going to let the young kids play. We're going to use this year to figure out what we have, and then we'll build from there and add pieces that kind of complement them but they didn't do that. And in a couple of the cases, you know, like Alarice Montero, their third baseman to start the season, he was in over his head. He was not ready. Setting him down to the minors and having Musaka's up in the majors, that one kind of made sense to me because Montero needs the time to develop. But there are a couple of outfielders down in the minors. I'm thinking of like Nolan Jones and Michael Toglia, who should probably be in the majors right now over some of these players who are making $8, 9000000 million right now. And that's kind of where the disconnect is. They're not, they're just, they just have bodies right now. There's no plan. I don't really know which direction they're going in anymore because all these people they have up in the majors right now that are blocking some of their younger players, they're all here on one-year deals. So it's not like they're here building pieces for the future. They're just here for now. That's a really great point, Danielle. We're talking with Danielle Allen Tuck of the Denver Gazette. When the Rockies won uh, yesterday over the Brewers in their 3-2 to two victory there, uh, you look at a guy like Jerickson Profar, started in left and led off. Uh, Randall Grichik is in right. Uh, journeyman Harold Castro was playing second. Uh, Mike Moustakas came in at one point to play first, about to back rookie Brendan Doyle. But the, these are all guys exactly, that. That's, that's the point. When you look at the end of this game, you have guys like Profar, Grichik, Castro, and Moustakas finish the game. None of those guys are part of the Rockies' longer-term future. They're barely part of the Rockies' near-term future. Is this sort of an admission that, that uh, once again, the Generation R, the, the, the kids aren't actually ready, or is this something filling out? Uh, well, you talked about what Bill Schmidt said, but Dick Monfort said that he thought this team was going to start playing 500 ball and thought that would happen this year. Now, uh, everyone around baseball just sort of cocked their head and looked at him like, you know, when dogs do when they're a little bit confused by a he noise. Says that every year. He said, we, quote, we have a lot of talent. A lot of good things are going to happen and they're going to start happening this year. I think we can play 500 ball, end quote. It's hard to believe there's a disconnect between Monfort and Schmidt, but it does beg the question, as the owner really understand what's going on in his organization? Because nobody outside Dick Monfort thought this was a 500 baseball team. 
No, they're not. And I think that, I mean, even inside the organization, they still think that if everybody plays as well as they could, there's still a good baseball team who can play with everybody. You know, people said that the other day to me when I was talking about them. But you look at their roster right now, I mean, even the building blocks, the veterans that they have that are here in longer-term contracts, they're not impressing me at all. I mean, Chris Bryant's here for another six years after this. He hits singles every day, but I've never seen him make a play or hit a grand slam or do something that actually kind of changes the course of a game that I've seen. You know, Charlie Blackman is what he is at this point in his career. Ryan McMahon is just kind of slugging along. So even their key pieces that they think that are already here, they're not playing as well as they should be. And I think this is just sort of the type of player they are, and they need to accept that. But the team still thinks there's so much more in them. Yeah, and it's kind of that uh, delusional attitude that has uh, uh, ever so slowly but quite surely uh, produced a decrease in attendance numbers, and those attendance numbers have dropped more dramatically this year than I believe they have in quite some time. Uh, The fans, I think, caught on a while back. Um, There's always a lag time with attendance, and there are many reasons to go to a baseball game uh, beyond a belief that the home team uh, is uh, putting out a credible product. I, I wanted to ask you about the immediate future, too. Uh, they've won two straight uh, to make them 10 and 20 now. Uh, but for the May schedule, there are only three home games all month against losing teams. Uh, it, 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 it doesn't seem that this is one of those months that's going to uh, flip their record from what it was in April. No, it's going to be ugly. They have, I mean, they have some really tough away series too. They go to New York, they go to Pittsburgh. The pirates are good. Now, if you missed out on that, yes, they go to Texas. They are Rangers are good. Now they right. don't have First place. an easy schedule anywhere. I think it's going to be really hard for them to get through. And now they're going to have a fifth spot in their rotation that they have to fill every five days with, either a long reliever or calling up somebody from AAA who's not ready to be there. And this team has had starting pitching problems enough as it is. They've already lost probably half their games because of that. It's not going to get any better for them. Danielle, knowing that this team now in May is likely to falter, do you believe when we talked about a lot of these veterans and some are, are playing at least okay ball that are on one-year deals? Well, those seems to be like the perfect kind of guys that you can trade for a for uh, uh, some low-level prospect. And yeah, it's a dart, I get it. But if you have the guys like the Profars and the Moustakases and, and, and the Gritchicks that are not going to be part of the future anyway, do you believe if the Rockies have a bad May that they would consider flipping some of these veteran players to teams that, that are more interested in acquiring that kind of player to maybe make a playoff run for prospects? Or do you believe the Rockies, uh, as they have done in the past, just tend to kind of hold on to their guys and believe that all of a sudden the season's going to turn around? You know, one would think that they would try to make some deals and trade some players. Um, the problem is those veterans on one-year contracts, none of them are playing superstar levels right now. You know, they're not going to get a lot in no. return. So you have to group, like, like they really need a starting pitcher right now. And they could even go for a triple-A starter on another team who's kind of but like, who could in the future be a part of their rotation. But they would have to bundle, like, three to four players together to get that at this point. Oh, sure. And I think that they really, from what I've heard from other organizations, that they kind of overestimate their own players a little bit and kind of oversell them. So (laughs) that's part of the reason why they've had so much trouble making trades. 
<laughs> and I, I just don't know if I see that changing. I mean, I could see them selling one or two pieces, but I wouldn't expect like a fire sale. She is Danielle Allen Tuck, the lead Rockies writer for the Denver Gazette. Make sure you follow her on Twitter, D underscore Allen Tuck. Check out everything at the Denver Gazette together to catch everything latest, not only in the Rockies, but everything else, but Danielle and the Rockies specifically. And right now, uh, Danielle, thank you, because it, it, it feels a bit like a thankless job. So thank you not only for uh, hopping on with us and breaking it down, but for being there every day and, and, and keeping your finger on the pulse of that team. Thank you, guys. All right, thanks. And, uh, Sandy, you brought up the attendance. And yeah. I, I, I took a look at that because, obviously, you know, we had the COVID year in between. But 2018, the year the Rockies won 91 games. Right. And, and, and they, tied in the regular season for first place. Now, I understand the playing game was technically a regular season game, but over the course of 162 games, they won as many games as the Dodgers. Right. Did. In that 2018 season, the Rockies – Average thirty seven thousand two hundred and thirty three per game right. in, in attendance. Right, and, and they had made the playoffs the year before, and they were seventh in the the league in attendance. Right in twenty nineteen, thirty six thousand nine hundred fifty three. Even though there was slightly fewer, it was actually sixth. Of course, you know that we started yeah. to get uh, there. There right. was volume from that as well. The twenty twenty season, no fans. Twenty twenty one, the Rockies dropped to twenty four thousand. 854. The number is not relevant because you know that was sort of post-COVID because yeah. they still finished seventh in baseball. So this is a team that hovers around that. And you can imagine the teams that are ahead of them are, are you know, the, the ones you quite frankly would expect. The Dodgers tend to lead the way more than anybody every year, but you have the, the Cardinals, the Yankees, uh, those kind of teams, the Mets, Houston. Oh, yeah. In 2022, you got a little bit of a decay. Last year, the Rockies had 32,467. That dropped them to ninth. So, as you pointed out, this this tends to go a little bit. But 2023, the early going right now, the Rockies are now averaging 27,426 per game in the early going, obviously, as it is. But for the first time in a long time, they fell out of the top 10. Right. And they're way out of the top 10, Sandy. They're right. 17th. Right. 17th. Yes, that's lower half of Major League Baseball. In a beautiful park with weather that has been certainly decent. I, I don't think you could point think to the weather and say it's been unusually severe started. No. And, and has kept fans away four or 5,000 fans per game away right. from the ball. Those, by the way, all home attendances, as I was explaining. Yeah. Right. So, so listen, People have been on to this for a while. I remember back in the day, Dick Moffert complained when they weren't in the top 10. And I said, well, you have a bottom 10 product, probably a bottom five product, and you're expecting top 10 attendance. And in fact, in recent years, they have been consistently in the top 10. This year, they will not be. Uh, they will not be. Now, you know, 17th could become 20th, could become 22nd, 23rd, very easily. Very easily. A, a really good story over at the USA Today uh, a couple weeks ago, back back on the 25th, um, talked about baseball's attendance. And, and at that point, they waited until every team had uh, basically a handful of you know, home games in, in the books and looking at the, the, the way it pans out. It's very straightforward. In fact, here is even the headline. It tells you all you need to know. Early 2023 returns show winning is still a foolproof plan. <laughs> Winning is the best plan. Yeah. And yes, there are other things, you know, that the 
through through April, by the way, the attendance is up. Last year's baseball's average twenty six thousand five sixty six. Now it's twenty seven thousand two sixty seven. You know, I I I think apart from maybe, let's see, uh, Rockies are dreadful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is anybody else in the National League? I mean, St. Louis is unexpectedly bad, but you figured they'll they'll recover. That's a team that will recover and be at least a 500 team. But here's the interesting part of this. But you've got one team in the National League that's hopeless. In the American League, you've got Oakland and Kansas City, and they're hopeless. Every team in the East is 500 or better, and it's basically that way in the National League East, too. So, you know, everybody now with the playoffs set up the way they are, everybody is kind of in the mix, and you have some nice surprise stories uh, particularly, I think at this point in all Major League Baseball, the Pittsburgh Pirates. They went through all the numbers, and the way they did it, I thought it was pretty clever. They went ahead and looked at teams whose basically lowest attended game of, of last April. They looked at that and, this, and looked at their teams. Is that up or down, right? There were teams that were up. Tell me if you start to recognize the pattern. Teams were up in attendance. Rays, Mariners, Yankees, Phillies, Marlins, Blue Jays, Astros, Mets. A's, which is, there's a reason for that. Pirates, Padres, Dodgers, Guardians, Cardinals, Cubs, and Giants. Now, the A's were so poorly attended last year that they end up on there. It's very tiny. Three teams were 2% or less changed. Diamondbacks, Twins, and Rangers. 11 teams, their lowest attended game in April now is lower this year. Orioles, Reds, Red Sox, White Sox, Rockies, Royals, Brewers, oddly, Angels, Nationals, Braves, and Tigers. But you look at the, t- the trends, pretty predictable. Seven of the eight... And 11 of the 14 biggest gainers made the playoffs last season. That's telling you right there. Baseball fans are happy to come out. Attendance is usually a reflection of what you did the previous year. What you perceive to be the quality of the team. Right. Not not perception. The team is right now. So the Orioles, who I think a lot of people thought would be good and showed signs of growth last year, significant growth. That surprises me a little bit because Camden Yards is a wonderful place to win mm-hmm. the game. And for a year and a half, the Orioles have been quite good. And they're quite good this year. They're in second place, are they not? Mm-hmm. The American League uh, is uh, yeah. behind uh, Tampa. Right. And every team in baseball would be behind Tampa if they were in the American League East. Every single one. Pretty remarkable that that start there, but you know made it very clear. And I I love I love the the line here. And this was as Gabe the Rock of, of USA Today. Going back four years, and this is basically the best summary. The the four years since illustrate the proven sports businesses, i.e., fielding a decent and charismatic team still matters. That's interesting because the Rockies do have a sense of how to field a charismatic team. They understand the values of a Charlie Blackman or when they had them a Troy Tulowitzki or a Nolan Arenado. They understand the value of those players. That's one of the reasons they signed Chris well, Bryant. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, they, they seem to, but the charismatic part of it yeah. is sort of the facade. It is. It, and it's a facade. Now, I, I, the Rockies don't see that. They had genuinely charismatic teams in 07. 2009, mm-hmm. even when they didn't quite make it and collapsed at the end of the year in 2010. Uh, three or four, three of those four years, they were charismatic. I, I don't know that they, they were good in 17 and they were 
actually better, although I thought 18 was a bit of a fluke. They, they of course, looked at it as a floor, uh, 91 wins, and it went into the next season expecting, well, we start as a 91-win team, and we can only grow from there, which is a complete misreading of what had taken place. But in any case, uh, I don't know that they were charismatic in either year. They were just good. And Black did a great job of the pitching staff in those years. They were not the Blake Street Bombers in 17 and 18. They won because they pitched well. Even here, they pitched well. Better than opponents pitched here. A lot better than opponents pitched here for those two years. But now they are neither decent nor charismatic. And it they, shows. They aren't. They, they aren't. Have, they They're have just old and bad. A regular appearance in the top 10 for, for literally, Sandy, decades. A top 10 performer in attendance. Overperforming their and that's where I get to get tired when people talk about Colorado not being a baseball city. This is one of the well, cities no, that they, oh, this is one of the cities that overperforms its market. Uh, uh, absolutely, overperforms. Absolutely. Denver absolutely. is the 16th biggest metro area in the yeah. United States. The Rockies were always in the top 10. Now they're yeah, 17. Well, and when they weren't a few times, Bonford complained about that and knocked the fans. And I, I think when you start knocking fans, and I, I, it's it's strange that Dick Monfort, who from what I've heard. Uh, engages in person with fans, even fans who criticize him to his face, uh, quite ably at the games. It's strange that his public posture, Dick Monfort, his public posture would be to uh, knock the fans. And I think that's probably coming as attendance continues to drop. That criticism, not of the team, uh, not of himself, I mean, He's, you know, not feeling a good enough team to draw, but there will be blame placed at the feet of the fans for not bringing their feet into the ball. Following a disastrous May, the Rockies may be even worse off than they are, and then we will really find out what Rockies fans think. Want to know what you think? The caller and text line is 303-831-1340. We'll turn our attention to the college football scene in Colorado where a couple different programs making moves, including the highly underrated Colorado School of Mines. Talk about it next on My Life Sports. Best James Dean. Well, then there and Diane got to run off to city. Diane says, baby, you ain't me. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. I do want to get to uh, the, the college scene, and I, I will, but I want to call out some of the quality reporting in the Denver Post yesterday. They're doing it the, uh, doing it the hard way. The, uh, the fact that Subarus are not the top car in Colorado shocked me. Oh, uh, report you're from the, kidding. Report from, just seeing Danny Bailey's eyebrows behind in, in the glass. In every Sandy. parking lot right. I'm in, that is, right. let's say, at least three quarters I've, I've had one. I mean, I, I don't I've have one now, but I've had one. people parking next to me, not only with the same vehicle, but exactly the same features, right. the same color. I, I mean, I can't tell you, and part of this is... Uh, periodic senior moments i understand <laughs> but i can't tell you how many times 
I walk up to a vehicle thinking it's mine. Right. And have to look inside for several seconds before I realize it's not. But it turns out that, that the Subarus are not the uh, number one in Colorado, and not even number two. So good reporting by the Denver Post. At 95,000, roughly, active vehicle registrations, the Ford F-150 pickup is the most. Okay. The Chevy Silverado pickup, number two, with roughly 75,000. And then Subaru Outbacks, third, with 56,000. The fourth, by the way, the Toyota Tacoma, another truck. So yeah. one could make the argument, if you're talking about uh, cars and not pickups, right? then it's Subaru. Not totally surprised the pickups, yeah. obviously, in Colorado being a, a major well, part of the equation. Yes. But uh, but still, it, it is it is not the, the top one. Now, Subaru is, interestingly enough, uh, the, we talked about the Tacoma. Then you have the Jeep Grand Cherokee, the Toyota 4Runner, the Subaru Forester is then next on that list, too. Those are the only ones that have 50,000 or more registered in the state of Colorado. But uh, but good report. That, that caught my eye, and I, just, I, I couldn't believe it because I thought the same thing. You know, driving around the highway, just uh, it, it feels like it's, it's Subarus, but it turns out it's, uh, it's not. So, um, hmm. Of course, those are registered in Colorado. It's not the people who came here from a registered from another state. They bought a Subaru because they're coming to Colorado. But nevertheless, I digress. Congratulations. <laughs> Go to <laughs> Pete Sturbeck, by the way. Pete Sturbeck the, was the interim football coach at the Colorado School of Mines after Brandon Moore resigned last month uh, to take the head coaching job at the University of San Diego. Obviously, the, the team last year was the best it ever been. Uh, they won their 15th. Uh, title in the conference, 9-0 in their conference, 13-3 overall, reached the D2 uh, title game for the first time in history. And uh, you understand then why, you know, Moore ends up, up moving on. But Sturbeck has been the OC since 2019. Right. In a release from the university, said the tradition here started well before I arrived in 2019 as off the coordinator. We've been fortunate enough to take our program to an elite level. We aim to stay on a championship track and are hungry for more. Our players are and will always be priority number one. And I am grateful to be their coach. Uh, obviously, this team was the D2 leader in scoring. 44.6 points a game. Offense, a lot of it. Uh, so, Sturbeck They there, were far and away yeah. more fun to watch than any team on any level that played in the state last Sturbeck year. has coached with the head coach before, but it was a while ago. 9-11 with McPherson College in the NIA, NAIA pardon me, in 2012. But uh, the advantage for mines, too, is uh, uh, John Matocha, the quarterback uh, is coming back because honored at the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame right? last week because uh, good, well, good to hear the, that he's the Harlan Hill winner uh, last year yep. ends up uh, coming back and of course he uh, um, as everyone at Mines well, of course he's coming back because he's going to be an engineer <laughs> primarily as opposed to be a, uh, a football player right. but congratulations to Sturbeck and uh, congratulations by the way to Tim Brandon offensive line coach and run game coordinator now, the new OC replacing Sturbeck. Um, obviously, when you talk about Tim Brandon, you're fully aware of the lines there because Greg Brandon, the former Mines coach that four different uh, Rocky Mountain Athletic Conference titles and four playoff first 25, uh, 2015-2021, uh, Tim Brandon's father. So some of that, uh, the Mines coaching stays in the family, but congratulations, I think, to uh, to Pete Sturbeck, who I think has earned this opportunity, and Brandon Moore earned his opportunity to, if he wants to go somewhere else to, to do so, and he did. Uh, but this feels like a good opportunity for Sturbeck to take over as a head coach for the second time, and I think there's value 
in second time head coaches. Oh, I agree. Because I you learn a lot always, from they're the mistakes almost the always time. better the second time around. So almost he wasn't always. bad the first time, nine and eleven. No. But uh, yeah. uh, obviously, getting your your quarterback back, getting a, most a lot of a team back at least that was the, yeah. the division you know, two the, leader in the scoring. Only guy, right? Things for mine. Who was great from the beginning uh, in NFL history? Right from the beginning, he was great. Vince Lombardi. That's it. That's who I was about to pick. That was it. That's all I could think of. It's the only one. It's not Madden. The only one. Interesting stuff going along, by the way, as as we still talk about the the turnover at the University of Colorado. ESPN had an interesting discussion talking about the transfer portal, and they obviously Colorado came up in the transfer portal part and uh, echoed some of the concerns that you've had, Sandy. Not not in necessarily the way that they've uh, uh, chased players off. I think that that's, that's an interesting angle because it depends on who you talk to. Um, one of the statements in here said, I've spoken to the few players who left the program that didn't feel like there was a family atmosphere at Colorado and wanted to seek opportunities. Uh, if that wasn't accounted for in Colorado's yeah. plan, then Sanders needs to feel out a way to, to fill those holes. This isn't about losing star players or contributors. The Buffaloes need depth on special teams and in case of injuries. And this is still such an interesting work in progress because you just haven't seen what Deion Sanders and the University of Colorado are doing. And I, I've made the argument, and I will continue to make it, that Colorado was the worst Power 5 conference football team in America, and I don't even think it was particularly close. I, I don't think you'll get much of a debate the worst. on that. And now all of a sudden with Sanders gets the amount of attention that you can turn over a roster in in short order. Um, some of the players that have left the Buffs, the coaching staff didn't want them to leave. They, they I, did They did lose some starters that, that it might have been yeah. better if they had not because you're going to have to replace well, them with somebody there new. Two that I that I definitely buy into. Uh, Jake Wiley was a good tackle. Uh, yes, last that's year. that was the biggest. And loss. Nico Reed was a decent cornerback. Now I understand why a cornerback might bail, knowing that you have Cromani McLean and well, Travis Hunter coming I, I, in. Yes, okay. Uh, and I, I could even understand that in that instance there might have been a little nudge, uh, but I, I would grant them the truth, being that Jake. Wiley left of his own volition and was not told to leave. And so it doesn't make sense. It just kind of felt like this isn't Sean Keeler's column yeah. last week. I think we're told that they needed to leave, but uh, Jake Wiley wasn't one of those guys. No, no, by uh, that, there's no indication that that's the case. And by the way, a uh, r- reminder that the uh, it, the buffs have now the the idea about practice film have allowed anyone transferring out to have all of their practice and game film available from everything prior to this spring when Sanders came aboard. Which they don't have to do. But they don't. That, and, and that's but, the thing. But it was a good move. It was made as a, it was kind of like as if he was doing something unusual and they really weren't. Mm-hmm. But in this case, uh, I think they accepted the fact that it was it was a, an optics problem. Yes. And they're not going to give them anything for the spring practices because that's the new organization. Absolutely. But anything from Carl Durrell's stint, uh, go right ahead. Yeah. You know, if that helps you find a new, new place, go ahead and take right. it. And so I think, uh, Sanders and the Buffs got on the right well, page of that who, rather quickly. Who was the kid Gonzalez, right? Who was drafted? Christian Gonzalez drafted in the first round, round. Who did start at Colorado? Yes, before transferring. transferring. Yep, and uh, it'll be so the thing that shakes my out. My point is, they've had they have had it, some talent, few and far between. Of course, they haven't had but enough they talent. They have to had compete, some talent, but but definitely some ability. And uh, uh, news uh, yesterday, of course, 
former five-star recruit, edge defender Savelle Smalls from Washington, uh, transferring to Boulder. Uh, never missed a game in the first two played in all of the Huskies' 29 games. Uh, play, played primarily as a pack a backup, which is part yeah. of the reason he is transferring. Well, but was of course. A, a five-star course. prospect and had 31 scholarship yeah. offers coming out of high school, including uh, you know Alabama, I, I, I have no Oregon. I have no problem it. with that. If, if, if you are these are these are kids, they yeah. develop at different rates. And if a guy was a five-star recruit, and and was still good enough to make the field, teams in the country were recruiting him. Then you know, okay, he comes here, changes scenery. That that's fine, and I think they've done well. This this is an absolute matter that they've done everything right or most everything wrong. Nobody is suggesting that the truth lies in any other place beyond the gray area. Right. And it's it's a matter of degree, and that's what I liked about this particular uh, exchange involving, uh, I guess it was four different college football correspondents uh, for ESPN. Yeah, yeah. Interesting and article. Com. Check it and out. It, it was interesting because they all made uh, points in different ways, uh, but in the end, you know, it's a numbers game, and it's a question of, Backfilling, uh, not, not so much for the 22 guys who start on offense and defense, but when, when you have injuries and you have special teams issues, which along with everything else they had last year, <laughs> as well as offensive and defensive problems, there were problems on uh, special teams as well. There, there are holes to fill, and my reservation about what they're doing lies in the fact that I think they have created in the minds of their followers not just hope for a new day, but expectations for this year that I would deem unrealistic. Yes. And I'll be specific. That six wins now, rather than a real achievement, has in the minds of some CU followers become the floor. And that's a real risk. We we take You're right. for granted that CU will be in a bowl game. And I think right. all of this activity and the occasional hyperbole, not constant, but occasional hyperbole surrounding it, makes it seem like eight and four might be acceptable but uh, why not nine or ten if you could win eight and i i, I think winning six would be just fine i i, I think winning just six is fine exactly going six and six would be just fine yes i agree I with a chance to be, be better in 2024 that should be the goal and uh, when presumably yeah, not as many people would be leaving right Compared to how many are leaving now, and now the, the recruits you're bringing in, a lot of whom are really well regarded, then have an opportunity to uh, to get settled in and, and get better. I think that's obviously, I think it's a really good point, Sandy, because I think the expectations are, are perhaps unrealistically high. I think six wins in a bowl game is the correct expectation, but I do too. Uh, I, I moment, think that's the ceiling. The, the uh, hype, very close, very to close to it. I suppose the ceiling would be seven, seven. and five, a winning season, and you know we get back to Lombardi that's kind of what Lombardi did in Green Bay his first year and kind of what he did at the end of his life uh, during the one year he coached uh, the Washington 
Washington football team. <laughs> exactly. Well, we talked about it earlier. Baseball is back, but the push for the postseason is on in hockey and hoops. So make it all count this spring with Superbook Sports. Superbook Sports is the best wagering app around with a direct line to experienced bookmakers behind the counter in Las Vegas. Plus, right now you get a $250 bonus when you sign up, deposit, and wager in the same day. And I don't know why you wouldn't do that. If you signed up, you might as well make a bet. So don't let spring pass you by without winning money with Superbook Sports. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Folks over at ESPN had had a good, interesting piece there. An interesting one, though, that they talked about losers after the NFL draft and people who end up in a worse situation because of it. The Denver Broncos had a very significant player on that list. I don't agree with it at all. I'll explain why next on My Life Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The NFL draft, of course, brings changes to every team and it changes to depth charts, changes to situations. And over at ESPN, Bill Barnwell, a terrific, terrific football writer, put a list of, of situations on certain teams and then maybe who benefits and who doesn't. Lamar Jackson benefits. They got Zay Flowers. That helps. Yes. Uh, uh, but the it was a very nice weekend for Lamar Jackson. It really was. But it's gone pretty well for him so far. Uh, but one of the folks that was listed as a loser was interesting. And that was Jerry Judy of the Broncos. And what Barnwell wrote is he said, it's tough to parse exactly how Coach Sean Payton views his depth, wide receiver depth chart. He inherited a group with Judy, Cortland Sutton, and Tim Patrick, with the latter coming off a torn ACL. That would be enough for most NFL offenses. But even with limited draft capital, the Broncos still felt strongly enough about Marvin Mims to move up into the last spot of the second round to take him. Now, he goes along a little further, but in the last paragraph, it says the 5'11 Mims is more plausibly going to be a downfield burner, which leaves Judy between two worlds. The Broncos picked up his fifth-year option, but with a desperate need for draft capital after trading Peyton and Russell Wilson and seemingly too many wide receivers to go around, would dealing Judy help Denver? I'm not sure he could net a first-round pick with two years to go on his deal, but even a second-rounder would help Peyton retool his roster. Well, Judy is now... Could you trade him? The suggestion would be trade him now before the season even begins. That's not going to happen. The, the NFL trading period is more or less over. You may see a couple deals during training camp. The, the the what I believe Barnwell is misreading is the reality of the Broncos' circumstance, and it has nothing to do with Judy, who in the final six games of the season was one of the few people on the Denver Broncos who actually delivered a rapport with Russell Wilson but also performed as well as the top wide receivers in the league and gave the indication that perhaps he had matured and the Broncos have understood how to use him in a manner in which you can maximize his ability. I think it's about 50-50 right. on the split between I those do two. Too. The arrow pointing all the way up for Jerry Judy right now. Yeah. The difference is, as we talked about it yesterday, what Barnwell's missing is that Cortland Sutton is the sixth highest paid receiver in the NFL this year. Sixth. That's the problem. It's not Judy that Mims is out there to change. Mims, ideally, what what do you can you, you know? Jerry Judy's actually brilliant in the slot. He's brilliant in that role. Uh, you can leave him there and put a Mims on the outside right. running deep routes. Tim sure. Patrick running the the under routes. You, yeah. you have all those options. It's Cortland Sutton that I think is the loser of this because yes. the Broncos, after have a cap hit this year of twenty five point four million. 
uh, or par- pardon me, that's the dead cap. His cap hit is 18.2. Right. Dead cap of 25, so you can't move Cortland Sutton. Right. But after the year, that dead cap goes down $18 million, drops to 7.6, yep. meaning that the Broncos would save $10 million by moving away from Cortland Sutton after this fall. Right. That's the plan with Mims. That's the plan. Not Judy. And I'm a little surprised that on on the national side, someone as as adept as Barnwell missed that. Yeah, and I I think part of it has to do with the idea that the Broncos in the past have done so many funky things, and Peyton is not one of those guys who believes that any team he coaches should be spending top three money on wide receivers. Top five, top ten money. Very, very much from the now, Bill, Bill Parcells you, you school. Looked, as he right. himself has explained you, in his intro press conference. the point he made that from his time in New Orleans, Peyton typically found a primary role for a bigger receiver to work the middle of the field. The player was initially Marcus Colston before he gave way to Jimmy Graham and then Michael Thomas, of course. Of the players on Denver's depth chart, it would seem likely Sutton, Patrick, or tight end Greg Dulcich, all of whom are 6'4", be in line to play that role. Uh, Patrick and Dulcich are more a part of the Broncos' long-term future than Cortland Sutton. And, and certainly KJ Jerry Hamler Judy as well. is simply stated the Broncos' number one receiver yes. at the moment. Now, uh, much has been made of... Judy's first two years and arguably two and a half as not being as productive as they should have been for a fellow who was drafted in the middle of the first round Mm -hmm. before C.D. Lamb was drafted by Dallas, before Justin Jefferson was drafted uh, by Minnesota, uh, among others who have at least matched Judy's production overall through three years. But in the last six games, the production over that six-game stretch was akin to the production of the Jeffersons and, and the Lambs. The Lambs, yeah. <laughs> the premier wide receivers in the game. He was in that class. Now, is six games enough to turn me into a full-fledged jury Judy believer? No, probably not. But I think it is fair to say that Judy was held back over the first 11 games more by Russell Wilson than Russell Wilson was held back because Jerry Judy was letting him down. I would agree with that entirely. And, and let's not skip Nathaniel Hackett and a and an offense that made no sense as well uh, in that equation. And, and Judy in his rookie year, did have 52 catches for 856 yards and a 16.5 per. He just had a lot of drops, and the drops are drops. concentrated in one game. A lot of the drops were in one game, and actually the drop rate for Jerry Judy has plummeted since yeah. that rookie yeah. season. He, He's he been is shown to have the hands that people right. expect. And the idea, well, Mims is a burner. Okay, well, let, let's let's just go to the 2024 Broncos, for example. Let's jump all the way ahead. K.J. Hamler's a burner. That's the guy who's the that's, that's the guy that's immediately gone from Mims. But the longer term... Is Sutton next I year? You, okay, you have a six foot four Tim Patrick as your under wrap possession receiver. 
You have a extraordinarily versatile guy that now looks like a first round wide receiver that's six one one ninety five in Jerry Judy. And then you have a five eleven burner in in Denzel Mims, who you can put on the outside or in the slot. You can put Judy on the outside or in the slot. Patrick is your possession receiver and, and your and your big body. That's a combo that makes sense. And if you add and assuming that Greg Dulcich comes around and starts looking like the player that he when healthy. Uh, appeared to be as a receiving threat. Now, all of a sudden, you mentioned it. You talked about the uh, the receivers when Sean Payton was there with Drew Brees. That's kind of a similar core. You have a short burner. You have an all-around guy. And you have a big body for possessions. And then you have a tight end that can split the seams. And I, I may be getting carried away here, but I believe Dulcich is kind of at this point, a player very similar to the type of player at tight end that Jimmy Graham was. Yeah, I mean, the production I, I mean, obviously very is similar. not there, Jimmy but Graham you're talking wasn't about simil- similarity. Blocking, sure, similarity. Any more than Dulcich is. Speed, big hands, good route runner, uh, not out there to play. Yeah, I mean, I think there's similarities there. And, and I, I'm not surprised that Sean Payton is constructing a roster that seems similar to what he's had success with. That's what guys do. But this notion that uh, Jerry Judy is the loser. You, know, you hit it on the head, Sandy. It's just that simple. Jerry Judy is the Broncos' wide receiver one. Simple as that. I, I, you don't have to say anymore. He's not it's going self-evident. Uh, now, it, over the last six games of last season, it, it was obvious to most everybody, even people, as I was, previously critical of Jerry Judy. Yeah. By the end, it was it was clearly the way it was going to go, and it still is. So, I mean, obviously, that's... Uh, we will find out with, with Mims. Certainly, Hamler, obviously, his role is essentially eliminated, and he's hurt anyway because right. of hurt working out on his own, which the team already sees as a no-no. And, um, you know, ask Juwan James about that. The But the scenario, yeah, is Sutton's salary that is the elephant in the room. And, and they can't do anything about it in 2023. They can't. But you have a rookie wide receiver that you can work in where you want to work in if you can. Understand that Tim Patrick's going to be coming off of injury, a serious one. Uh, you can use Mims, but yeah, your your top four receivers this year are Judy, Sutton, Patrick, and Mims, and and maybe not even in that order, depending on Patrick's recovery. Yes, but which, uh, which we sort of slice and dice uh, it anyway. We sort like, of ignore the list starts with Judy, not Sutton. Right. We sort of ignore the recovery, haven't we, of Tim Patrick a little bit because we've been talking so much about uh, Javante Williams, who the Broncos still seem to think could be ready for opening day. I haven't heard anybody who knows anything about the kind of injury sustained say that he'll be ready by opening day. We know it's uh, it, much yeah. less within the first month of the season. It, it's going to be expected to be a bit. Uh, we shall be available see. for the first month. Of, forget about opening day. It won't be the it'll be a month into the season at least, and maybe two months into the season before. Want to thank Danielle Allen Tuck for joining us, talking about the Rockies, Herman Marquez's Tommy John's surgery, and what that means for a moribund Rockies franchise down to twentieth. And Blake, Danny Bailey's in the booth making everything work today. Uh, Andrew Jeffersoff, Nigel Ken Gethy in there getting the uh, job done on video for everyone on Mile High. How about them cracking beating Dallas last uh, night in overtime? Defense optional, six yes. goals in the first period in that one. Uh, yeah, who knows, right? That. Hockey playoffs, they'll do their thing. We'll check Maybe in with them. Maybe the avalanche loss wasn't so disgraceful after it all. It might not be. We'll check in with the NHL playoffs tomorrow to be sure. But we're going to hand it off to our friends at Afternoon Drive with Cody Rourke and, and the birthday boy. It's Anilo Piro's birthday. I had no idea. 
His Twitter's a media. What have you done for media him? by AP? Go, uh, go, go! Give him a little shout out on Twitter. It's his birthday. Well, I found out it was his birthday before the show, so I haven't gotten. Oh, it. I see. You have that time. Yeah, that was my excuse. I just, uh, I just learned. So I gotta. I guess I gotta go shopping. But anyway, what we can give him is uh, time for his quality radio program. And that's coming up next for Sandy Clough. I'm Sean Drotar. Keep it tuned right here on Mile High Sports.